And what Jesus does is he comes as the greater Moses to set his people free from a spiritual bondage. Jesus comes to set us free from the spiritual bondage that we didn't acknowledge we needed. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to the fourth part of Pastor Paul Twist's 11-part series, Christ, the Center of All History. Pastor Paul's text today is chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, still in the New Testament Gospel of Matthew. Written expressly for the Jews who largely rejected Christ, St. Matthew gives a full perspective on this amazing Son of God, Son of Man, Savior. Pastor Paul shows us Matthew's Gospel presents the man Jesus as a greater Moses and a greater David. Moses led Israel out from a hostile Egypt centuries earlier, but their salvation was incomplete. Christ, the Son of Man, stands above because He is God incarnate, the only true Messiah to walk this earth. Here's part four of Christ, the center of all history. As we do consider this text in Matthew's Gospel. We are moving forward in his prologue. And if you've been tracking, you'll know that what Matthew is doing in these first two chapters is laying out lines of evidence to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. He makes that claim in verse 1. That's how he opens his Gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. For any Jewish reader, that's a bold claim. And so then, Matthew, for two chapters demonstrates the reasonableness of his claim. He shows us that Jesus indeed is the long-awaited-for King of Israel. I wonder if you've noticed, perhaps, as we've been working through each line of evidence, that the way in which Matthew makes his proof each time is subtly different. He began by making the claim in verse 1, and then the first thing he does is give us a genealogy. We would call this a historical proof. He invokes the testimony of history, many, many names, to show us that Jesus is of the right lineage to be labeled the Messiah. What Matthew then does is talk about Jesus' birth by quoting a prophecy from Isaiah. So we're now in the realm of prophecy fulfillment as he draws on one verse spoken many, many years before, portending, foreshadowing a supernatural birth, namely a virgin conception. And he says, because that was the way in which Jesus came into the world, there is a a fulfillment of that prophecy, and that then constitutes a second proof that Jesus is the king. Last week, we considered the wise men. Jesus having been born in Bethlehem, is another fulfillment of prophecy. But again, it's more than that. Every single time Matthew is doing something subtly different, last week we saw that Matthew is projecting forward. He's leaning on the words of Isaiah chapter 60 as as he projects forward in accordance with Jewish expectations that a king would come and the nations would stream to him. And for that reason, again, Jesus has to be the Messiah. 
So every time Matthew is constructing this complex argument that's wonderfully rich, showing us that Jesus could not have been anything else but the long-awaited-for king. Sure enough, in our text this week, Matthew does something different yet again. We do see the words of fulfillment in verse 15, but he's actually doing more than showing us that a prophecy has been fulfilled. What Matthew is doing here is what I often like to term as finding resonant frequencies. Matthew is finding resonant frequencies with certain Old Testament texts. I remember as a young boy finding out about the phenomenon of resonant frequencies. I finally understood why it is that when the, the opera lady sings at a certain pitch, the glass vibrates to the point of smashing. Or I used to enjoy as a boy finding that resonant frequency with the car window so that now the air is pulsating and hurting everybody's ears on the freeway. Resonant frequencies exist all around us. In Scripture, there are resonant frequencies. More than simply saying, here's an Old Testament text that has been fulfilled in Christ, there's actually some correspondences that go beyond the text quoted. If you were to read a commentary or a theological book discussing this text, the word that they would use is typology. That's the theological term for my resonant frequency. Here, Matthew is constructing or identifying typological relationships. We're in the realm of typology. What does that mean? Simply that Matthew shows Jesus to correspond to be presented in the likeness of certain characters in the Old Testament. But the important point to note when we talk about resonant frequencies or typology is that there is always an escalation. So Matthew shows us that Jesus corresponds to certain Old Testament characters. But it is not merely a horizontal correspondence. That frequency grows such that when Jesus appears, the correspondence is clear, but he shows himself to be yet more glorious than the Old Testament counterpart. What are the correspondences that Matthew shows us today in these few verses? There are two. One reaches all the way back to Moses. The second goes back to King David. There are types that we want to consider this morning. The typological relationships, the correspondences, the resonant frequencies are reaching back to Moses and to David. And what Matthew is doing is showing us that this man, Jesus, appears as a greater Moses and as a greater David. A more glorious Moses and a more glorious David. A better Moses and a better David. Again, linking this text into the broader context that would have served as a proof for Matthew's original readers. Perhaps it doesn't stick out to you as anything akin to a proof, but to Matthew's Jewish readers, it would have been. They would have had certain expectations built into their thinking as it relates to the Messiah. Expectations that would have been put in them when they were children, hearing the Old Testament scriptures read. 
And so as Matthew points out the correspondences, as they become plain for everyone to see, they then function as a proof for his original readers. Whether you were seeking that proof this morning or not, they also serve for all of us as a point of worship. As we come and behold Jesus to be our Moses and our David, a yet more glorious Moses, a yet more glorious David, it should prompt us to worship him and to align our lives with his commands. That is our prayer this morning, that we would see Jesus as the greater Moses, the greater David. We would worship him in response and obeyed his word. Let's consider the first, and that is Jesus as our Moses. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The correspondences are fairly clear with the situation into which Moses was born. So they would be, first and foremost, that both occur in the context of Egypt. He's being told to flee to Egypt. Moses was born in the servitude to the Egyptians, and so the the geographical marker is the same in both cases. In both cases, we have a king who is intent on working against God's plan. Pharaoh felt threatened by the number of Israelites in his nation. And so he gave an instruction to to kill the children, throw the the firstborn child into the Nile. He'd increased their servitude as a nation, and now he wanted to do away with the children so as to, to thwart their growth. He felt threatened by them. Similarly, as we learned last week, Herod felt threatened by this new king on the scene. The wise men somehow understood that the king of Jews was here. They pronounced him as such, and Herod was threatened. And so now he, like Pharaoh, says, I want to kill this child. So there's that correspondence. What is the nature or what is the significance of Matthew showing Jesus in the likeness of Moses? Certainly, the entry point might be to teach us yet again about God's sovereign hand, his good guiding hand in the events of the life of Christ. You'll notice in verse 13, we're told, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. This is the third dream thus far in Matthew. This angel of the Lord keeps showing up. He's sent by God to warn Joseph or to inform Joseph of certain things. And more than that, we understand that the angel is preventing this child from being killed. So very evidently, all the way through Matthew thus far has been a testimony to the good, guiding, sovereign hand of God. Certainly, that is one of the reasons for this correspondence. You think back to last week, I argued that as you consider the good, guiding hand of the Lord over Jesus' earthly life, That teaches you a lot about how God views you. This is a doctrine that we need to impress upon our hearts. Over and over again, we can't get beyond this because we so desperately need it. You need to understand that just as you see God's goodness 
his preserving hand in Jesus's life, in so much of you as you have trusted in Christ, put your faith in him, and you are now united with him, that good guiding hand is also acting in your life. There is this spillover effect as you knit yourself to Christ through grace and faith in his life, death, and resurrection. And now you can celebrate the fact that God is only ever working out good in your life for his glory. We talked about that at length last week, and it should inform the way you view the world, the way you view your circumstances. When things don't go your way, you affirm God is good. All the time. He hasn't left me. He has not lost control. But I am knit together with Christ in the gospel. And this good sovereign God who reserved his life is working in the same manner in my life. That is a crucial doctrine for Christians to believe and to reaffirm in their hearts daily. We desperately need it. But there is more going on here. As Matthew shows us Jesus in the likeness of Moses, there is more than him simply demonstrating again that God was preserving this child's life. And we begin to understand the more of what's going on as we note a couple of verbal correspondences with the Exodus narrative. So if you look with me at verse 13 again in Matthew, we read, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. There is a verbal correspondence here with Exodus chapter 2, verse 15. Now notice, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 2, Moses is no longer a child. He has grown up, and if you cast your minds back, he has that incident where he kills an Egyptian and he flees. He flees from Pharaoh And it's at that point that there is a verbal correspondence between Matthew's gospel and the Exodus narrative at the point of Moses having grown into a man. Notice again, if we drop down to verse 20 in chapter 2 of Matthew, we read, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Again, that's another verbal correspondence with the Exodus narrative, specifically Exodus chapter 4, verse 19. Again, that is beyond Moses' childhood. It's got nothing to do with God preserving him as an infant, but it is speaking of Moses' return from his time in the wilderness. His earthly life as a man. So through these verbal correspondences, what you see is that Matthew is impressing upon us Jesus in the likeness of Moses, not simply as both were children. What Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus in totality shares a correspondence with Moses in totality. Here, if only by virtue of a a hint, a subtle hint, Matthew is bringing into view the entire life of Moses and impressing it into the entire life of Jesus. And he's commending us to view Jesus in this gospel in the likeness of his predecessor, namely Moses. And as we move through Matthew's gospel, this mosaic theme will come up over and over again. 
So then, if we understand that Matthew wants us to see Jesus as a greater Moses, we might ask, what exactly are the correspondences that he wants us to see? And I would say they are primarily twofold. And zooming out here and taking Matthew's gospel as a whole into view and the correspondences that Matthew wants us to see between Christ and Moses are primarily twofold. The first is that both men serve to release their people from bondage and set them free. Think back to Moses. His mission was to set the people of Israel free from their bondage in Egypt. They were enslaved by Pharaoh. Their labor kept increasing. Pharaoh was working them to the bone because he felt threatened by them. Moses was a reluctant leader. God called him. At the burning bush, he commissioned him and Moses hesitated. In one sense, he was very bold because he pushed back on God. But he was very hesitant as it related to going towards Pharaoh. And God says, you will go and say to Pharaoh, this is my God. Let my people go. Reluctantly, Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, who is this Yahweh? And he shows Pharaoh who he is through almighty displays of his power that brings the most powerful nation at that time on the entire planet to its knees. Through these different signs, he brings Pharaoh and the nation to their knees to the point where Pharaoh finally says, go, you have to get out of here. I can't compete with your God any longer. And it's at that point that Moses, in his God-ordained role, parts the waters of the Red Sea. I wish we could have seen it. Walls of water on either side stood up, not one drop falling without God ordaining it. And thousands of Israelites walking through on dry land, following their leader, Moses. And Pharaoh, ironically, has a change of heart at the last minute. So he commissions his armies to go after them, and they sure enough they do. And then the waters come crashing down, and he destroys them. Moses sets his people free from bondage. That's how we're introduced to him as a figure in the biblical narrative. How much more so does Jesus set us free from our bondage? You have to understand, to see and appreciate Jesus as the greater Moses, you have to see how much more is our bondage. So much more than the physical bondage portrayed of the Israelites in Exodus is our bondage, apart from Christ, to sin. The sinner is wrapped in cords of sin, bondage to sin, that day by day are growing tighter around his chest and tighter around his neck. And the bondage that we experience as sinners is far stronger than any manual labor to which Pharaoh gave the Israelite people. We can't see it with our eyes. You can be the most physically comfortable person on planet Earth. And theologically, it's true of you that apart from Christ, your enslavement to sin 
is more oppressive than anything that is pictured of the Israelites in Egypt. And you do not have the strength to break free from those cords of bondage. You do not have the strength to do anything about your bondage to sin. What is tragic is that apart from any work of God's grace in your heart, you actually delight in that bondage. We love our sin and we don't love God. We don't even have enough spiritual awareness to see that we need rescuing. And so the bondage to which we're enslaved gets heavier and tighter with each passing year. And we keep feeding it. We delight in it and we don't cry out for mercy. And what Jesus does is he comes as the greater Moses to set his people free from a spiritual bondage. Jesus comes to set us free from the spiritual bondage that we didn't acknowledge we needed. He gives us a salvation that we were not aware that we needed. He comes and sets the cords of bondage loose so that, such that they are smashed into pieces, never to be wrapped around the Christian, never to be retied onto those whom Jesus has saved. Do you understand that as Christ has saved you, you are never, ever, ever again enslaved to sin? Does the Christian continue to sin after his salvation yes the war with the flesh continues until the day christ returns but the key difference is that you will never again be enslaved to sin it will never again have mastery over you jesus will not let those cords of bondage retie themselves to you and so as Jesus comes as the greater Moses, he sets you free to be free indeed, to be free forever after, never again to experience bondage to sin, but now wonderfully free to obey his command, which is exactly what God created you to do. Charles Wesley wrote, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's might. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon inflamed with light. My chains fell off. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Jesus is our Moses. You are listening to Timeless Truth Today. When in Christ, we see our Father's guiding hand throughout our lives. God's plan for you will never be thwarted. Pastor Paul is joining us today, so welcome, Pastor. You closed today with some lines from a famous hymn, right? Matt, that's right. Those lines are from the 18th century hymn writer Charles Wesley, taken from the third verse of his hymn, And Can It Be? It's one of my favorite hymns because it speaks so beautifully of our release from our bondage to sin. And just like we observed in the message today, 
when we are found in Christ, when we put our faith in Him, we are released from our bondage to sin. We live our lives resting in our Heavenly Father's grace, and we are empowered each day by the Holy Spirit to obey. Yes, and amen to that. Thanks, Pastor Paul. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you'd like to learn more about following Jesus Christ and His call on your life, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Join us tomorrow as we continue in our series, Christ, the Center of All History, with Part 5, from Pastor Paul Twist. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.